Well, let's turn now to our, our final session um, as we'll try to cover these uh, last chapters of Judges. Just to, we'll just read together the last chapter, uh, Judges chapter 21. So please turn with me to that chapter, Judges chapter 21. When the, the men of Israel had taken an oath at Bizpah, not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Early the next day the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, Who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah was to be put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for the tribe of Benjamin, their fellow Israelites. Today one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left? since we've taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage. Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the rock of Rimmon. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh-Gilead who had been spared. But there were not enough for all of them. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, With the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives, since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, there is the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebanon. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards, and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize one of them to be your wife. They return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, Do us the favour of helping them, because we did not give, get wise to them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath, because you did not give your daughters to them. 
So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right, or did as they saw fit. This is the word of the Lord. I live in the, the CBD of Melbourne and from time to time I ride the trams. If you know the trams in the CBD, there's a, a free tram zone, which is very nice. But uh, we own an apartment, just one tram stop outside the free tram zone. But hey, it's just one stop. And you hardly ever see uh, a tram inspector. So the odds of getting caught one stop are really very, very low. Uh, I shop at our local Coles on Spencer Street. It has, not like many now, it has that self-serve checkout. If the odds of not getting caught riding a tram outside the tram zone, the free tram zone, are low, the odds of not getting caught ripping off coals are even longer. The trick is, I've heard this, the trick is, you buy an expensive item like a mango, put it on the thing and call it a carrot. Saves you lots of money. And it works. They did a survey of a... You look horrified. (laughs) They did a survey of 50 university students and asked them, and 38 admitted to stealing. That's admitted to stealing. In other words, 75% admit to be thieves. Now, the big stores lost in 2011 $7.5 billion to theft. And a lot of mangoes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Very good. Now, let me put your worried hearts at rest. I tap on and tap, tap off outside the free tram zone, okay? Just, I call a mango a mango. Just, just relax. I, I saw the look of horror on your faces. Uh, and I do that because, not just because I've learned as a child that honesty is the best policy, but because I believe in God. I believe in a God who, who watches me and one day will call me to account. And I've wondered sometimes what I would do if I didn't believe in God. In a God who doesn't watch me and one day will call me to account. What would I do? I think I do what's right in my own eyes. Like many, many people. Well, we go now to the end of, of Judges. Judges, I think, is like walking through a cave and the, the deeper you get, the darker it gets. And that's Judges. Uh, and if calling a mango a carrot is serious, how much more what we read about in these chapters. Look, I've preached on the, on the few times before and I've never preached the same sermon twice because I've, I've never been happy with what I said because I just 
they're such dark chapters. I think for women to read them, I've not read out the worst chapter. I just try not to be sensitive to the to women who are present as these are read out. I just I just I just find it very 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 difficult. Uh, our world's on a campaign right now, and rightly so, to uh, confront domestic violence, especially against women in our families and I'm aware when I speak on this in any group there are women there wives, daughters, sisters who've been abused. I spoke on this, this passage a couple of years ago in Coffs Harbour. I gave the talk. The first person to, to come up to me was a woman and she just said, I'm one of them and, and there'll be others. So maybe it's better to finish your exposition in chapter 16 with Samson. But you, you, we can't. The Bible describes our world in all its glory and its horror and all the chaos and misery that comes from human sin. And women are victims. We haven't seen Jephthah. We, we, we skipped Jephthah, sadly, but he made that foolish vow which almost certainly cost his daughter her life. This is our last time Samson. And his fiancée burned to death. And now, of course, here we see the abuse of women on a, on a massive scale in these last chapters. They're, they're just bleak. I don't think there's one noble character in all of these five chapters. There isn't one noble deed. Not one noble deed in these five chapters. And God barely mentioned. He seems like a minor character, though we know there he is behind the scenes working out his purposes for his people. So he must preach these chapters. I don't, I don't know who wrote Judges. Well, I do, ultimately. We do. Every word we've read today and we'll hear today is God-breathed, every one. And therefore good for our souls. These words will make us wise to salvation, says Paul. They'll make us more like Christ. They'll train us in righteousness. They'll thoroughly equip us as pastors, pastors' wives, as disciples for every good work. And I believe that. So you must preach it. Well, we look at these last chapters, uh, which are quite different from the rest of the book. For one thing, there's no judge in these chapters. But also, more importantly, this time the enemy is not without. The enemy is not Moab or Philistine. The enemy now is from within. It's Israel. And if we looked at the beginning, uh, the book begins with two chapters which both serve as introductions to the book. Two introductions. Chapter 1 tells us how Israel could not occupy the land because the people were too strong. Chapter 2, the real reason why they couldn't occupy the land, because they were faithless. So two introductions, and now at the end, two conclusions. The first describes the moral chaos, sorry, the spiritual chaos in Israel, the second, the moral chaos. So, of course, they're both connected. Let's look at these two very briefly. Both involve Levites, probably different men, from the tribe uh, to the tribe of Levi. It begins with a man called Micah, from the tribe of Ephraim. And his, his mother is being cursed because somebody has stolen her money, stolen 1,100 pieces of silver. She's a wealthy, it's a wealthy family. Well, Micah fesses up. I'm the thief. And he gives the money back. 
mum tells him, why is you so upset? Because she'd given this money, she'd dedicated the money to the Lord to make an idol of cast metal. We are three verses into the narrative. We've broken, uh, well, don't make for yourself a graven image. Honour your father and mother, don't steal. Not a promising start. So then the mum gives uh, 200 pieces of silver to the silversmith to make the idol. Well, hang on. She'd given or dedicated 1,100 and she gives 200 to the silversmith. Now, I'm not great at maths, but doesn't that leave 900 unaccounted for? Well, maybe her name is Sapphira. I'm not sure. Anyway, she makes the idol and ends up in Micah's house. He makes himself an ephod and appoints one of his sons a priest. Now, of course, the priests were meant to be from the tribe of Levite, not Ephraim. But hey, this is Israel. And everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And now the Levite enters the story. He's from Bethlehem, he's passing through, he comes to Micah's house. Micah offers him a job. Come be my Levite. So they're both happy. Micah has a true blue, genuine article, real deal Levite. Levite has a job. They're both happy. Well, Micah's happy for a while. The scene now shifts to the tribe of Dan. You may remember there, Samson's tribe. And they're still looking after 17 years for a home, a place to live. So, like Joshua, they send out, they send out 12 spi- five spies to spy out the land. These five men come and end up in Micah's house. They meet the Levite. They say, Levite, inquire of the Lord, will our venture be successful? He says, yes, it is. Is it will? And they head off. They come to a town called Laish a small town where the people live quietly and securely. They have no enemies and importantly, no near neighbours. They're isolated. They're vulnerable. They can be taken. So with excitement, these five men head back to Dan. Dan pulls up roots, takes off to Laish, led by 600 armed soldiers. They pass through and come again to Micah's house. The five then come to the front door with the 600 soldiers by the gate, which would be fairly intimidating. They say to the Levite, come, be our Levite. Why be a Levite in a house when you could be a Levite for a whole tribe? If they were Anglicans, they might say, why be a priest when you could be a bishop? Why run a parish when you could run a diocese? Why live in a three-bedroom vicarage when you could live in a bishop's court in the centre of town? It's an offer too good to refuse. So the Levi goes off with the tribe of Dan to be there to be their priest. Micah realizes what's happening, takes off after them. But they soon convinced him that because they have six hundred armed soldiers and he's all alone, it would be prudent to write it off as a loss. <laughs> and, and he does. Oh, by the way, the Levites took with him Micah's ephod and the idols. But when a thief steals from a thief, there's a kind of poetic justice there. 
the tribe come to Laish, they destroy the city, set up the Levite and his idols in the centre of town. That's the story. I think it's meant to give us a snapshot of what life was like back then in Israel. You could repeat that, in other words, a thousand times over. A picture there of spiritual compromise which tells us what happens when people forget the word of God. Forget how God has saved them, what he's done for them. They remain religious, they speak of the Lord, but they compromise with the world around them. And that's true, sadly, of our world today. Of our church today. We speak of the Lord, but in part, it's just compromised paganism. There's a book published in 2006 by a, a woman called Rhonda Byrne called The Secret. It became a huge bestseller. And she claims that you can get anything you want in life. You can get wealth, health, uh, the right partner, uh, business success, anything you want, simply by what she calls the law of attraction. So, think about wealth and you'll get wealth. Think about a car, you'll get a car. Think about a parking spot, you'll get a parking spot. She claims that her ideal weight is 116 pounds. Since she began to think about that, she hasn't moved one pound either way from her ideal weight. She remains 116 pounds because she thinks about it. I quote, Thoughts are magnetic and thoughts have a frequency. As you think, those thoughts are sent out into the universe and they magnetically attract all like things that are on the same frequency. Everything sent out returns to the source and the source is you. Now, I haven't a clue what she's talking about. That just seems to me complete gobbledygook. But basically, the whole thing is obsessed with self. It promises heaven on earth now with no cost, no commitment. And we have the equivalence in the church. It's called the prosperity gospel. So they replace the word think with the word believe, don't they? The same promise, health, wealth, whatever. So Kenneth Hagen says you should never be sick. Like Rhonda Byrne, he's claimed for 40 years he's never had a headache. He's been a headache to the church, but he's never had one himself. <laughs> and we'll be rich, he said. A guy called Fred Price says it's a matter of faith. See, same thing. Have one dollar faith, you get a one dollar item. Have a thousand dollar faith, you get a thousand dollar item. He says, I may want a Rolls Royce, but if I have bicycle faith, I'll get a bicycle. I must have Rolls Royce faith. It's, it's just paganism baptised with Christian jargon. That's all it is. Baptised paganism. And it's a scourge, as you know, on our church. It seduced the church worldwide with this false gospel. Baptised paganism. Like Israel. So around the world today. 
That's the first part of the book. Spiritual Chaos and Compromise. Chapter 17 and 18. Now we come to the moral chaos. Chapters 19 to 21. Again, we meet a Levite. Again, from Benjamin. He acquires a concubine from Bethlehem. It just sounds like a business transaction. He gives her room and board. She gives him her body. Well, she leaves him. Not, not quite told why. Some suggest she wasn't faithful. I'm not sure, but she leaves him and goes back to her, her father in Bethlehem. Four months later, the man, the Levite, follows her to bring her back home. He and the father have a debate for some days. The father says, keep staying, and he stays for a while. But finally, he leaves and heads back home. On his way home, he goes to a town called Gibeah in the land of the Benjamites. Now, if you recall the story, it's, and you know the story of Lot in Sodom and the angels and his daughters, the story has a very familiar ring. Very familiar. Except, this isn't Sodom. This is Israel. These are the Sodomites. These are part of God's covenant people. He meets an old man. He says, don't sleep in the village square. Come stay in my house. And the Levite and the concubine stay there. During the night, uh, worthless fellows, depraved men, literally the sons of Belial, surround the house and demand the old man give the Levite to them for homosexual rape. The old man says, like Lot in Sodom, quote, Look, my virgin daughter and his concubine, please let me bring them out Rape them, do with them as you please, but to this man do not do this foolish thing. It's just, that's horrific, isn't it? You know, I have two daughters. It's just appalling. So the Levite throws out his concubine to these men like you throw out a piece of meat to ravenous dogs and sets in motion a chain of events that could almost destroy Israel. The men again and again rape the women through the night. The concubine crawls to the door, half dead. In the morning the man gets up, the Levite, with not a flicker of emotion, puts her on his donkey and heads home. I met a lady a year or two ago who's a doctor who works in the emergency ward of a hospital. And she assured me, having had that kind of physical and emotional trauma, unless you got immediate care, you'd be dead. So, this is one consolation. She's almost certainly dead. By the time he brings her home and cuts her up, into 12 pieces and sends a piece to each tribe in Israel, not even given the dignity of a funeral. But the brutalization and humiliation continues. And Israel says, chapter 19, verse 30, nothing like this has ever happened 
or has been seen since the day Israel came out of the land of Egypt to this day. And now a personal feud becomes a national crisis. All the tribes of Israel demand that Benjamin hand over the men who've done these things. And they refuse. And now it's civil war. And chapter 20 describes the war. And it's like, if you go back to chapter 1, to when the whole thing begins, we read these words in chapter 1 of Judges. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. We now turn to chapter 20, verse 18, almost the same question. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who of us shall go up first to fight against the Benjamites? The enemy is not now the pagan tribes. The enemy now is Israel and God gives the same answer. The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. So they fight. And it's just carnage for both sides. All up, Israel loses about 40,000 men. Finally, Benjamin is defeated and devastated. Men, women, children, livestock, all slaughtered. The towns raised to the ground. Only 600 men survive. You might think that's the end of the matter, but sadly, the abuse of women has only just begun. With 600 men left, the tribe is facing extinction. And that means Israel as a nation is finished. These men need wives. But the tribe made a vow not to give to the Benjamites their daughters. But they find a loophole in the contract. If a tribe did not go up to fight, we can take their daughters. They find this tribe, Jabesh Gilead. They attack it. Another Jewish town who's done nothing wrong, really. And they kill all the men, all the married women, take the virgin daughters and give them to the Benjamites as wives. So why these girls watch their mums dads, brothers, slaughtered. They're taken, given to these men who raped them under the guise of marriage. I see nothing different here than what Boko Haram do in Nigeria. Remember Boko Haram? Take what, two, three hundred schoolgirls, take them to be forced wives. They said, we have married them off. They're now in their marital homes. It's outrageous, but there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right, in their own eyes. But that amounts to just 400. There's still 200 short. Don't bother looking for a contract now or a clause. There is in Shiloh a festival to the Lord. Did you see that? A festival to the Lord. As these young girls come out singing Blessed be the name. How great 
Yahweh's love. As they're singing in praise to the Lord, these men who are hiding behind the bushes come out and grab them and take them home as forced wives. These awful three chapters begin with a woman being thrown, as it were, to the dogs. It ends with the dogs being invited into the camp to take their women as they danced before the Lord. Because there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, that's the awful story. Let me say three things uh, by way of application. Now, let, let me say too that Judges wasn't written primarily to address the issue of gender violence. That wasn't the author's main purpose. It, it was, as we've seen, to tell us about our God and his covenant faithfulness, even with a people like this. But it does, I think, implicitly address contemporary issues like this one. You, you, you can't read these chapters and not be appalled by the treatment of women. But the great mistake we make as preachers with these stories and the application is he circumvent the church. I read a sermon, not on sermoncentral.com, but Gospel Coalition. And it began with these words. What is happening in our modern world? <laughs> no, this book isn't about the world. This book isn't primarily about Moab. Or Canaan. God isn't concerned primarily for the Philistines. It's what's happening in the church. This is describing God's people. It's what's happening in the church, in Israel, in the covenant people. It's describing the church. Not the world. The church. And it should be that one of, it should be one of the great distinctives of the church is our care for, our esteem, our respect for women. We have been in the past famous for that. There's a great book by Rodney Starr called uh, The Rise of Christianity and Why the Church Grew in the First Three Centuries. A very, very good book. And he says part of the appeal of the faith was the way it treated women, unlike the secular world. In the Roman world there were just more men than women. Because families, men, didn't want baby girls. It was legal to expose your baby daughter to die at birth. It was legal to do that. So even in big families, they normally had just one daughter. They killed their daughters. As happens today, as you know, in China with the one-child one policy across the Muslim world, the exposing of children, girls, to die. Christians didn't do that. They saved their girls. They didn't abort babies because abortion killed mothers too. They respected women. They cared for them. There's a record of a house search in the town of Circa in North Africa in 303. They found their clothes set aside for the needy. They found 16 men's tunics, 82 women's tunics, 47 pairs of female slippers. They cared for women in a world that didn't. 
Women reached positions of leadership in the early church. As unknown in the pagan world. They regarded highly widows and cared for them. Christian girls married later. And the church grew. That's why uh, the magazine Eternity, I think a year and a half ago, was so disturbing. There was an article there by a woman called Isabella Young who spoke of the abuse at the hands of her Christian husband. She came out, as it were, and received, to her surprise, hundreds of emails from other women abused by their Christian husbands. Isabella's husband uh, was a Bible study leader. One day he dragged her by her hair upstairs because she spoke too long on the phone to her mother. Another woman married to a pastor who had anger issues. She demanded that he, uh, that he, that she obey him in everything, especially the bedroom, where she fulfilled all his sexual fantasies. Another woman with an abusive husband, again angry. One day, driving along, he pulled over, undid her seatbelt, and shoved her out of the car and drove away. His refrain was again and again, it's my job to get you to submit. It's my job to clip your wings. And she replied rightly, no. It's my job to choose to submit. It's your job to love me. You see, this this book doesn't just turn the spotlight on the world, but on the church. It doesn't cover Israel's sins and nor should we. Our reformed churches must be safe places for wives, sisters, daughters. Now let me say, the abuse does go both ways. It's not just one way. There are men abused emotionally, verbally, by their wives. It happens both ways, but mainly, of course, towards women. So I think it would be remiss of me not to to say to us men here today, if in our marriages there's that kind of abuse, we must repent. We must repent. We must be, for our congregations, a model, a model for how a husband loves his wife. I I, I must be able to say to you, ask Sarah. Look at how I treat Sarah and reflect that in your marriage. And we need to talk about it. I spoke in this uh, two years ago at a convention and a guy who now has a ministry to try to get churches to confront this issue and they won't give him a platform said, Mike, this is the first time ever I've heard this addressed from a public platform. We must address these issues wisely, sensibly, appropriately, but we, we must. 
It's happening in our churches. 1 Peter 3 says, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker vessel and as co-heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Secondly, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's true across the spectrum where there's no leader in government, in the home, in the workplace, the classroom, the church, when there's no king, there's no leader, no strong figure, there's chaos. I, I began my working life as a high school teacher at Liverpool Boys High School in Western Sydney. I, I was not, not a bad teacher, had, I had quite good classroom control, but one of my colleagues was a man called Greg Whitby. Uh, Greg was a very big guy, he would have found a good place at the Wallaby front row forward. Greg had no problem with classroom control. He just was a very big, intimidating guy, a strong authority figure. Uh, on our staff too was a lady called Irene Gilligan. Now, she was a very sweet lady and would have made, I think, a wonderful librarian. But as a teacher at a boys' high school, she was every day like a lamb led to the slaughter. And one day we were, having, we were teaching and there were kind of paper-thin walls. I was in classroom C, Greg in classroom A, and in classroom B, there was no queen in classroom B. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. It was just, it was chaos. And Greg finally came to my door and knocked on my door and said, Mike, this is hopeless, I can't hear myself, I can't teach. Here's what we'll do, you pop in, tell Irene there's a phone call for her. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I'll go in. I'll have a wee word with the boys. <laughs> so we did our little subterfuge and Irene went downstairs and Greg had a wee word to the boys and left the room, left a quiet, subdued, obedient room. We need a king. A king who rules by his word. Or there's chaos. I spoke in a church uh, a year or so ago. Uh, they had a new pastor. Uh, the church had a culture of drinking and not soft drink. And the, 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 he went to the Bible study groups. He came to one young people's group. He said there's lots of fellowship, lots of drinking, beer and wine, and less than 10 minutes Bible study. He'd been in the church a while and a man sent him an email. Pastor, since joining your church, I have become an alcoholic. Isn't that astonishing? Because they weren't gathered around the word. When there's no king ruling by his word, there's chaos. But when the king rules by his word, there's life. I spoke at a convention some years ago. A little while later, I got an email from somebody who was there. I'll read I'll read it to you. God spoke to me, he said, that my priorities have not been totally aligned with his and indeed that my spiritual life had stagnated since I was an enthusiastic new convert in 2003. I remember at that time I had naively told my bosses at work in my first few months that all that I wanted to do in life was to serve God 
and their career was not a big priority. Their enthusiasm soon got lost and choked by the weeds of ambition and worldliness as I pursued a bigger salary and a job with better prospects. To that end, I wound up working in the finance industry in the last two years, through which I have grown in materialism, greed and ungodliness. God has been merciful to me to give me a wake-up call. The first practical step that I am taking is to resign my finance job. For personally, it has been a hindrance to my spiritual growth. I am currently serving notice and will leave my current company on the 4th of September. I am looking for another job in public service with more altruistic objectives and I am quite sure I won't be returning to the finance industry. I'm also in the process of signing up to volunteer for the Salvation Army in tutoring disadvantaged children. I signed up for a mission conference in September and hope to be able to embark on my first mission trip soon. Another step I plan to take is to take up a theological diploma and grow in the Word. From compromise the Christ-likeness. From serving self to serving others. From following his own desires to following the will of the King. And such a life under Jesus' rule brings life to others. Now, I know you as pastors believe this. And uh, I know at the heart of your life is the Word of God, the life of your church. And that must remain. My first work, your first work, is to proclaim the Word of God. Give that the time it needs. Keep that your main gain. Because once Jesus stops ruling by His Word, there's moral and spiritual chaos and compromise. You're doing the right thing. Keep at it. And finally, these are tough chapters. But isn't it great that while the last word of Judges is there's no king in Israel, that's not the last word of the Scriptures. Their last word is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's God's last word. Now we've all heard God speak, I trust, in these few days through the word. You've heard the exhortation we all have not to fear the evil one. Not to seek our own glory and reputation. Not to give up when we failed. Not to live with guilt. Today to treat those God's given to us as wives and daughters and church members with, with love and respect. We've heard God's word and maybe maybe God's spoken to you and you've been convicted. Isn't it wonderful that God's last word to us this week is grace? It's grace. I mean, if he was patient with Israel, how much more with us? 
his adopted children. If he forgave them, how much more us who trust in the blood of Jesus? It's, It's wonderful news. So my last word for you these four days is not sin, chaos, judgment. It, it's grace. It must be grace. Forgiveness, a new start, hope. Will you have the true promised land? Will you live under the word of the true king? The King Jesus. For there is a king in Israel. The true Israel. And his name is Jesus. And by his word and his spirit, we will do what is right in his eyes and please him and glorify him and be a blessing to those God has entrusted to us. So, beloved, love judges, preach judges, preach the true king, the king of grace and mercy and love that one day, indeed, we will stand before. Let me pray for you. Father, these are, for our reading, difficult chapters. We see here exposed in all its ugliness the human heart, even the heart that confesses you as Lord. Thank you that by your Spirit you've given us a new heart. And I pray for all of us here today, you would continue to fill us by your Spirit. Day by day, renew us, that we might walk day by day in step with the Spirit. Help us to bear the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. May we manifest these gifts by your Spirit. Keep us from the works of the flesh. Keep us, we pray, as pastors, faithfully preaching all the Scripture that he, our King, may rule his people by his word. That our churches may grow. People may come to know the Saviour. They may mature and bear fruit. That this fruit may bring glory to God and cause others to be drawn to him. Keep us, we pray, persevering in righteousness for your name's sake until we meet again. For Jesus' sake. Amen.